Good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. We will continue with our discussion of the Paramatma Sandarbha. Uh, we're on the very first Anucheta, and we're discussing uh, the second sec section of that Anucheta, dealing with some verses from the Bhagavad Gita in support of Shijiva Goswami's overall general definition of what is Paramatma in order to acquaint us uh, with preliminary knowledge when we speak of Paramatma, what are we speaking of? If you remember, he began this Anucheta uh, by quoting Judd Bharat's instructions, uh, two verses from him, his instructions to King Rahugana. And those verses read as follows. The pure knower of the presentational field, Shetrajna, merely perceives these beginningless modifications, Bibudis, of the impure actor, the mind, which is but an adjunct, Upadi, of the empirical self, Jiva, and a product of Maya. Its modifications are sometimes manifest in the waking and the dreaming state, and sometimes unmanifest in the deep, in deep sleep and samadhi. So this first verse of the two is speaking about the jivatma and their perception of the uh, world around them. And Jad Bharat continues, the supreme witness of the field is the immanent self, the primordial person, and then there's a few a few of the characteristics of that supreme personality. So he's the imminent self, the Atma. He's the primordial person, the oldest, oldest person, Purusha. Uh, the most ancient person, Purana, uh, who is unmediately self-revealing, Saksat, or Swayanjoti. Self-illuminating, uh, unborn Aja, the Almighty Controller, Paresha, the interior regulator of all beings, Narayan, inherently endowed with potency, Bhagavan, the substratum of all beings, Vasudev, and who is established in his own intrinsic being, Atmani, by virtue virtue of the potency that is innate to his own being. Swa-mai-ya-ya. So that's where we begin. An opening understanding of Paramatma. Yes. Do you know which, which slokas those are? Uh, 5, 11, 12, and 13. Okay. Now you'll notice if you look up those verses in... Uh, the Bhagavatam presented uh, by Bhaktivedanta Swami. Mm -hmm. uh, there'll be different English translations. Oh, okay. Okay, or if you look them up in the presentation of his Bhagavatam commentary by Vishwanath, there'll be another Eng English translation, which oh. will differ somewhat. Okay. And then... This is such an Orion uh, Das's translation, or... The translation of his team 
I don't know if he actually translates uh, the verses himself or he has a whole team so he has a Sanskrit editor an English editor in there of course he's a Sanskrit scholar and they're very careful in their wording but even in his presentation of the Sundarbhas and his translation of the Bhagavad Gita he does translate according to the context of what he's presenting to the reader so they're not exact so it's just like any preaching field you're preaching to an audience and he's preaching in his translation of the Bhagavad Gita his his you can tell by the way it's done his intent is to translate it very scientifically and then there's a little bit of difference when he presents some of the Bhagavad Gita verses which I've noticed in this uh, here uh, because I refer back to his Bhagavad Gita to see uh, to put it in context what's being presented that there are little there are some small differences so that is the uh, the freedom of a, uh, a sadhu in presenting you know Shastra according to time place and circumstance so here we begin with Judd Bharat making this presentation and we can see throughout this first Anocheta that very very specifically what Jiva Goswami is relating is from our viewpoint from what we experience of the world and putting it at a context that it will become apparent as we even go further in this very first Anucheta the very the content of of our experience we have experience and that experience is referred to as uh, the Kshetra it's our field of activity we work within a field of we see what's in you know even even they say what the the, the field of vision the, the presentational field so we have a, a both a physical and a psychic field that we experience uh, through the senses and we begin there and without we can only take that so far by ourselves if there's no input from higher authority then in and of itself the presentational field will only take us so far it can take us well we can become very very introspective depending on how we're influenced by that field and that influence is more of of prior impressions so how we experience the field born of prior impressions and the karma that goes along with the the fulfillment of of that how we've been impressed so to speak we've been impressed one way we tend to be in the mode of ignorance and we've acted in that way and now we have to pay 
according to those actions in the mode of ignorance or those actions in the mode of passion or the actions in the mode of goodness. And we can, we can become pretty introspective, independent of outside influence up to a point. But truly, uh, outside influence, what we would call descending knowledge, the Veda, the Bhagavad Gita, other scriptures that are presented in other cultures according to the the influence of, of upon those people. Uh, as we become more acquainted with the function of Paramatma, he's very much into displaying the compassionate nature of that Supreme Personality and gradually uplifting humanity up to a point. There's a point when we have an opportunity um, to really gain some spiritual insight much deeper than what's even presented in Scripture, which is itself descending knowledge. But what primarily does the Veda deal with? It primarily deals with upliftment of, of humanity. Uh, Karma conda sections, the uh, jnana conda section, upasana conda section. It doesn't deal, the, there's a secret in the Veda, there's secrets in there, there's a lot of gems, but they're not really mined by the sages generally. Generally, people just, they want to, artha, dharma, kama, moksha. That's generally what people derive from the Veda. But if we can, if we have some contact with that, um, that inner meaning coming through uh, a disciplic succession, then that's that takes us in a, into a whole other other realm uh, above those primary uh, aspirations of humanity at large artha dharma kama moksha that that's that's a, even with descending knowledge so that's jiva's intent jiva wants to take us into that deeper understanding and that deeper understanding entails What's the life of God? What really entails his, his life? And his life is a life of loving relationships in Leela. And one of his Leelas is trying to bring people into that sphere of knowledge. So that compassionate nature of the Supreme results in this manifestation of the Purusha avatars, which are simply different aspects of the Paramatma feature of the Supreme. That will come out in the next Anusheda. So the second section of this first Anusheda, again, 
speaks of the presentational field by quoting from the 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, the first and second verse. The English translation of those verses is this body, O son of Kunti, is called the field, Chetra, and the one who knows it is called the knower of the field, Chetragya, by those who have directly intuitive both the field and its knower. And as I mentioned, that's important, who have directly intuitive. They're, they have some intuition into what is the field. They think intuitively enough to recognize there's a distinction between what's out there and what's in here. Then Krishna goes on in the second verse of this chapter, O Bharat, know me as the Shetragya, situated within all Shetras whatsoever. In my view, knowledge of the field and of both these knowers of the field is what is meant by true knowledge. So this 13th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita deals a lot with well, Krishna gives the definition of knowledge there. And we read that in our uh, last class on this Anucheda. And we're going to continue now where we left off in this second section of the first Anucheda. And here in this section of the Anucheda, Jiva Goswami is now going to refine his definition for us of what is uh, the Shetragya. What is really, what do we mean? Because you've said both, there are two. One's the Jivatma and one's the Paramatma. So Jiva refines it here uh, through different additional logic and evidence that really when we speak of the Shetragna, when we speak of that term, it's really referring to the Paramatma. And he he's now going to explain that. However, the meaning of the statement, this is Jiva's Anucheda itself, knowledge of the Shetra and the Shetragya, in my opinion, is what is meant by knowledge, is as follows. Knowledge of both items inclusively, the Shetra and the Shetragya, is considered to be knowledge of me alone, because the purpose of such knowledge is exclusively the knowledge of me, Paramatma as stated in the Brahma Sutra, or Vedanta Sutra, the deliberation, Paramarsha, of the individual self is in order to know the other, Anyartha, the Supreme Self. That's from the Vedanta Sutra. This is in keeping with the fact that the knowable, Nyaya, is stated to be only one from the Bhagavad Gita itself, 13th chapter, 12th verse. 
and it is indeed appropriate because the reality to be known has already been described in Bhagavat Purana 1 to 11 as non-dual in nature. So the verse from the Bhagavad Gita that Jiva is using here as one of his evidences, the 12th verse, I shall now describe the object of knowledge. Nyaya, knowing which one attains immortality. That Brahman which is beginningless and subordinate to me cannot be described either as the cause or as the effect. So this refinement is there, and he's going to go on and develop this a little bit more in his further defining what is the actual nature of the jiva's consciousness. But even if we contemplate what's the true object of knowledge, is it ourself? I mean, how far can self-knowledge take us? Where we have, we can see a presentational field, we have senses, we can see, we can hear, we can smell, we can taste, we can feel. All these, all this sensory, sensory input can give us, lead us to a logical uh, hypothesis at best as to what's going on in the world around us. It looks like it's this. But sometimes the way things look is not the way they are. Yes. Sorry for my movie reference, but it's really like the Truman Show. You know, he, he's having all this knowledge. He's using his senses and all this stuff. But he can even start figuring some things out. But until somebody tells him what's going on, there's no way he could actually. He can only take it so far. Right. Yeah. Do you want to explain? Well, I'll explain to her later. Okay. It's spiritual in nature, or Bhakti wouldn't have watched it in the first place. It has a spiritual underlying message which is just as she stated you don't sometimes you don't really know what's going on around you uh, you don't know what you don't know no I mean even even if you look at at some of the things that humanity does uh, we can capture an animal and an animal can be caged and put in an environment under our control. And the offspring of that animal, who's never had any experience beyond the cage and the environment that I've created for it, if the animal simply lives in my living room like a ferret, and you had has a baby ferret, it's, it's going to go outside and it's going to be completely what? Uh, what is the tree, a cloud, you know, all it knows is the sofa and the, 
you know, the coffee table and, you know, how to knock over the different objects and bite the people in the room. We've also used an analogy which is sometimes appropriate, especially you can see it in relationship to the influence of the modes of material nature. If you, situated consciously where you are now, after years of practice of devotional service, bhakti, it certainly brought, brought your consciousness to a level of, of the mode of goodness, which was probably much distinct from what your consciousness was prior to the influence of bhakti, even in this life. If you were to go into the inner city of a, of a major metropolis area and go into the uh, what's commonly referred to as the ghetto or whatever, and go into an apartment in that ghetto and observe the lifestyle of the residents there who are simply what? They're simply, uh, well, they're probably in that environment for the most part, a lot of those people are influenced heavily by the mode of ignorance. So what's their life like? They live in front of a TV. They get their welfare check. Uh, it's a it's a ghetto. These people are not pe go getters. They they're not really much in the mode of even passion to go out and get a job and try to improve their life. They're just happy, you know. They're content in that environment. But to you, it's extremely restrictive. All they do is watch TV, they go, they get their, they eat whatever comes along, they become, they don't care about their bodily maintenance, they don't care about the cleanliness of their body, they don't care about, they don't even hear the screams and yells and gunshots anymore that are part of their environment. They're completely, they become completely callous to what they're experiencing. And you would go there and they can live there for a whole day and they're just perfectly happy. The smell, the the sounds, the screaming of the kids, the the you where you are now consciously would probably not be able to tolerate the environment more than a few minutes at most. You'd be you'd be Please get me out of here. I can't take this. This is how can you live like this? Would be your statement. How can you live like this? And they their statement to you would be, I'm perfectly happy here. What's wrong? Who are you to judge the way I'm I'm living? I'm a happy camper. So yes, our environment to 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 have that kind of an awareness to see how the Kshetra, the field of activity, is different according to the two different people, as you say. As how can you, you, you need some introspection to even understand that there are different, it's, it, people perceive the presentational field differently according to their not only their physical, but also their psychic position. 
where the what where their mind is. So Jiva here is starting. He's 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 taking us in a in a refinement of an understanding of Shetragnya. He wants to refine it and say, really, just for that very reason that we just discussed, there's really one knower of the field because he can see clearly his vision is perfect. His observation is is without the influence of the modes of material nature. So who really is the observer of the field? It can't be someone who's so influenced by the field itself according to the influence that they've developed in association with the modes of material nature that it's entirely biased. The person in the ghetto situation is entirely biased towards that way of thinking. The university professor is entirely biased by his knowledge acquiring, his mode of goodness. Think of the life of a musician or, a, or a, uh, an athlete. These people live in worlds that, that are entirely different environments. So what is their observation of the field? Go and take up the regiment of a young gymnast who wants to be in the Olympics and live through her teens or his teens. What do they live for? What do they eat for? What do they sleep for? What's every moment of their life for? It's for being perfect in their discipline, whatever it may be, so that they can win that gold medal. And they'll, they'll, they, they'll enter into an environment which would be totally foreign to someone else. And so we could go on and, and speak of a hundred different examples just to see whether it be the person in the ghetto or the person striving for the medal or the person striving to be on a football team or the person striving to be the perfect Casanova who wants to enjoy all women of the world. What does he think about continually? Or the person that strives to be a perfect sadhu, entirely different environment. So the presentational field, we can't say that the Shetragya is really the Jivatma because that Jivatma, unless he com has completely purified consciousness, like the Paramatma, unless he's living on that plane, his observation of the field is, is biased. It's strongly influenced to what has been 
it's developed over lifetimes and lifetimes of samskaras and karmic reaction. Jiva would develop this a little bit more as we go forward in this Anucheta. But at this point, he now comes to, he's made his point, and he goes on to another point, that the Vivarta, Vivarta, I'm sorry, uh, doctrine is now Jiva takes time to deal with that and he defeats it logically. So, first of all, what do we mean by the Vivarta doctrine? The Vivarta doctrine is basically that the personhood of God, the Ashwara, is simply an appearance born out of illusion. The illusion of the jiva? jiva? The illusion of the fact that in the ultimate issue, everything is Brahman. So that's this is where the Vivarta concept come, is born, that is, everything is Brahman. So I'll read a little of what Jiva Goswami says in the Anucheta. Nor is it right to interpret the word knowledge as it is in the non-theistic Sankhya philosophy, which understands it to mean merely realization of the distinction between the field, Kshetra, and its individuated knowers, Kshetragnya, because in Gita 13.2, the pronoun mum, mean, me, necessitates the inclusion of a supreme knower, Ishwara. Nor can we agree with the Vivarta doctrine that the personhood of God is but an appearance born out of illusion. Because when his words in the form of revealed scriptures, such as the Gita, along with the Vedas, because then his words, and we went over this last time, would be rendered unauthoritative. Because he's illusion, God's illusion. What is their concept of God when we say he's illusion? In the ultimate issue, he doesn't exist. What else is an illusion according to their Vivarta theory? The Jiva doesn't exist in the ultimate. Both of them are what? Mithya. They're both false. What's their conception? Their conception is Brahman when influenced by the mode of pure goodness, which we know doesn't exist within the material realm. But if you were to conceive of pure goodness without any of the influence of other, the other modes of nature, that would be God. That would be the highest conception. And the jiva, the jiva is Brahman reflected in the material energy, influenced by the modes of material nature. So the reflection of Brahman in pure goodness that we can look at as God. But in the ultimate issue, 
both those conceptions are false because once you can get free of the illusion of material existence, then you'll realize Aham Brahmasmi. I'm Brahman, not Aham Brahmasmi, but uh, what is their thing? You are that, Tatwamasi. Jiva goes on, nor can it be argued that even if the personhood of God, Ishvara, is admitted to be real, we must still draw on relevant statements from Ishwara's other revealed scriptures wherein it is stated that knowledge of the unqualified absolute without qualities, unqualified, nirvishesha, gyan, alone is the means to liberation. This is indefensible because the intention of the previous chapter of the Gita, the 12th chapter, was to show the inferior, inferiority of such knowledge. So how's the 12th chapter of the Bhagavad Gita open? Arjuna says, well, there's two ways to look at spirituality, at, at, the, at the realm of spirit, at what is God. There's the Brahman conception and there's the conception of the Lord as a person. Can you tell me definitely which of these two is the proper conclusion, is the higher conclusion, is the more complete presentation of spiritual knowledge? And Krishna doesn't even beat around the bush. There's no question of which is better. It's, well, how's the word? How's the uh, verse go? Arjuna inquired, between those devotees who are always devoted in this matter and who exclusively worship you and those who worship the unmanifest imperishable Brahman, who are the topmost realizers of yoga? Sri Bhagavan said, those whose minds are absorbed in me, who are ever united in me and who worship me, being endowed with transcendental faith, faith I regard as the topmost realizers of yoga. In that very chapter, Sri Krishna makes the following statement in regard to his exclusive devotees. <coughs> Again, speaking in, I mean, the whole chapter dwells on this subject and the fact that the bhakta, this is the end of the, of the heart of the Bhagavad Gita, the 12th chapter, which deals primarily with what? Bhakti. But I quickly become the liberator of those who offer all actions to me, who are fully devoted to me and who worship me, meditating on me through the yoga of exclusive devotion. O Partha, without delay I lift them up, from the ocean of repeated birth and death because of their singular absorption in me. There's a lot of me's there for it to be an impersonal, you know, that Brahman uh, is the topmost concept. Here Bhagavan does not regard knowledge of the unqualified absolute as having any relevance for liberation. So what are the followers of Shankar? 
all those movies that Krishna's saying. Well, they read Sankar's Bhashya on Bhagavad Gita and Sankar's uh, Vedanta Sutra Bhashya, his commentary. And they take his interpretation of these verses as their Siddhanta, their conclusion regarding the absolute truth. Every Sampradaya has a Siddhanta. Well, Sankaracharya who isn't a recognized Sampradaya, although he's he has, his influence has been very profound, but we don't recognize his Sampradaya as coming from Shiva or the Kumars or Lakshmi or Brahma. Those He, he doesn't fit into any of those. But still, still he had a profound influence on re, spiritual thought and religious thought in India and it's centered around the Brahman sections primarily that speak about the Supreme Absolute in a very you know non-specific manner so really if you look to their way this is an interesting comment from the commentary if a non-devotee actor plays the role of a devotee and another that of God. Can the former's show of devotion be considered genuine? So in the theater, if you have one personality playing God and another is the devotee, the one that's playing a devotee, how genuine is their devotion? So, when we look to the Vivarta idea, how can any Jivatmas worship of God be that genuine when in the ultimate issue they're, they're both Narayan? In fact, they go so far as to call each other Narayan. Right? You're Narayan, I'm Narayan, we're all Narayan. We're all Brahman, we're all in the ultimate issue, we're all the same. That's why at this very onset of the Paramatmas and Dharma that this distinction is is being pushed uh, very firmly by Jiva. Factually, to think of ourselves as the same as, as Fara. In, in, the, in our line of bhakti, that's an offense. Jiva goes on. And now he deals with, he's shown, he's shown up to this point, what? That the um, Shaitragna is ultimately Paramatma. Now he's going to further refine the distinction between the Jivatma and the Paramatma by showing that ultimately all the goals we spoke of earlier 
artha, dharma, kama, moksha, are fulfilled by that other observer of the field, that ultimately to have any of those goals fulfilled, that's all done by the paramatma. The jivatma in and of himself cannot do that. So he provides the following explanation uh, in support of that idea. Bhagavan himself confirms the saying in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Okay, the same being the Praman verse that Jiva just used above. Um, who were the topmost yogis? And without delay, I lift them up from the ocean of repeated birth and death because of their singular absorption in me. So he goes on. Bhagavan himself confirms the same in the 11th canto of Srimad Bhagavatam. Whatever may be attained by performance of meritorious acts, penances, the culture of knowledge, non-attachment, yoga, charity, religious virtues, or any other means of ultimate welfare, is easily attained by my devotee simply by engagement in bhakti yoga to me. Although my devotee does not desire anything except me, if at any time he should somehow desire heaven, liberation, or residence in my abode, he can very easily attain any of them. That's from the 11th canto of the Bhagavatam. And in the Moksha Dharma of Mahabharata, it is said, a person who has taken refuge of Bhagavan Narayan achieves the four goals of human life even without recourse to the appropriate means generally employed for attaining them. Well, that's nice to know. Arthur Dharma, Kama, Moksha will be automatically there for the devotee without extraneous effort. Here again, in the 13th chapter of the Gita, which is our primarily Purman chapter here, so that the specific praises of the personhood of God may be made in the previous chapter, do not go in vain, and after indicating that knowledge means knowledge of the qualified absolute, he has qualities, uh, in verses 7 through 11, Sri Krishna concludes by saying that such knowledge is easily attainable if pursued along with devotion. So he, Jiva then quotes the 13th, I'm sorry, the 18th verse of the 13th chapter. In this way, the field, Kshetra, knowledge, Gyan, and the knowable, Nyaya, have been described in brief. Knowing this, my devotee attains my nature. So Jiva go, will go forward uh, from here and explain that the Jiva and the Paramatma are both imperishable. So this first Anucheta is, is packed with, with a lot of pertinent information. We're defining what is the Paramatma. 
Well, to define the Paramatma, we have to understand that the Jivatma is basically coming from the Paramatma. And he's fully knowledgeable of everything that the Jiva, Jivatma has in that he's truly what? The Shetragya. He truly is the knower of the field of action of both of of everything in the presentational field of what his creation so this manifestation of the supreme lord is primarily the creator the maintainer and the destroyer of the material cosmos and that will also come out a little bit here so um, as i said the first anucheta is 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 very thick and so many items are dealt with here, and we'll just continue to walk through them. Are there any questions? Give us something from your topic, Sandarva. Okay. Um, I have this, there was a quote that from Sachin Orion's introduction, and that maybe we, it might be too big a topic to get into now, but maybe we can talk about it later. I, I just mentioned to her that at some point, that would be, it, it was in reference to Nirguna Bhakti. Mm -hmm. uh, one who holds to the egoistic and separatist conception of being a performer of devotion, a chanter of the name, a doer of acts of good to others and God, and so on, is caught in dualistic devotion, impeding this transcendental flow. When we abandon the separatist identity, we become but instruments through which devotion itself flows unimpeded. The interactive screen upon which the divine name arises, the playground in which the drama of worship unfolds. It's a big... Well, it's simple. I mean, it's a simple understanding which you can think about, and then we can discuss more. Is um, from our conditioned state, we very much think we are the doer, uh -huh. so we think we're doing bhakti. Right. But as uh, Guru Maharaj says, the reality of the situation is bhakti's doing us. Mm. Bhakti's coming into the presentational field through the association of the sadhu and and very much we're being influenced by that swarup shakti the swarup shakti is truly the force that is enacting within us bhakti but from our perspective in the neophyte stage we're very much thinking I'm ch I'm chanting, you know, really bhakti has come in and there's nothing material we can do for bhakti. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. So that's what he's speaking of there. So are we, we just kind of try to get out of the way or not? We well, we, we, we have to know where we are and we have to work according to our circumstance uh, and and advance in the process, but eventually we're going to come to the point that really, I mean, you can imagine 
at a certain point, we're going to be overwhelmed by bhakti. In the beginning, we're at the, at the stage of sadhana bhakti. We're not at the stage of bhava bhakti. At a stage of bhava bhakti, spiritual emotion will direct us. So we're overtaken by emotion. That emotion is is coming from the swarup shakti, and that that's that's what's that's what's propelling us is the swarup shakti. We're being overwhelmed by bhava, by a spiritual emotion, and that's what pushes us forward. In the beginning, we're hearing, we're chanting, we're reading, we're worshiping the deity. We're going to continue to do all those, but the the primary deriving force is not going to be to follow the direction of the spiritual master. It's going to be, I can't live without this. This is my, this is my whole existence. So that's, that's what he's, He's he's going deeply into advancing from the stage of sadhana to the stage of bhava, where um, um, the emotional impetus takes over. Then true what? Loba comes. Greed. I can't live without this. I can't exist without this for a day. What, what would I do if I can't chant? I can't taste the sweetness of Krishna. So that's, it's a different driving force in the, in the life of the sadhika. What to speak is, that's just the ray. Bhava is just a ray of praying. What to speak of being immersed in praying. And then, then we can truly follow the rigatmikas and, and, and cultivate a love of, in the Prakat Leela, in the manifest pastimes. Anything else? Thank you so much for your association.